Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I don't want to make him blush, but John Farrell changed the discussion in economics worldwide at Davos, where he tore apart uh, Mr. Prince of Bridgewater over boom and bust. It became a three-day fun-filled derby for us, talking about the dynamics of our economic system at the zero bound. We didn't know then we'd be near a record low on the 30-year yield. We didn't know then we'd be at near 1,700 on gold. We didn't know then there would, of course, be this tragedy of a virus in China. To make sense of it, with a really important Fed confab today in New York, it's Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives, and you are perfect to talk to about the fear that's out there among public officials messaging, we are the world happy, happy. Jim Bullard's over on the Death Star right now with Joe, Andrew, and Becky. Everything's fine. Baloney. It's a Bullard regime change. Uh, Clarita uh, Galley-Gertler, 1999, the science of monetary policy. What's the science in 2020? Well, that's exactly what they're trying to figure out. I mean, they, they, it's a tricky communication challenge, especially at moments like this when there's a real threat to the outlook. Okay, but the difference here is we're getting yeah, yeah, yeah from Clarita. John, who else have we talked to? Mike McKee's got Messler we've, we've today. Heard from Everybody's plenty of central trying to bankers. Keep it, well, because you don't want to be the hair on, you have your hair on fire as a central banker. Okay, but you you're have allowed to, to say, have your hair on fire. Speak. Uh, well, I, I don't think that we know the extent to which this is it is not contained. The virus is not contained. It's spread to Korea. It's definitely causing damage in Japan. Uh, so we, we, and we don't yet know when it's going to stabilize. There are projections that'll stabilize this, by do- the end of the quarter. Julia, um, we're doing this at the zero bound. We're very close. What is the optionality these bankers have that affects every one of our listeners? Right. So I think it's interesting time to have this conversation because on the one hand, we know that the, the monetary policy officials are running out of tools. On the other hand, what we saw last year was that they can have a powerful impact with a few rate cuts, right? A few rate cuts, a little turn in the balance sheet, and all of a sudden the sentiment like switched pretty hard. Uh, and the housing market responded, commercial real estate responded. So there is some ammo left. They did keep the train on the tracks last year. Uh, but if the shock is big enough, obviously, you hit the zo- zero lower bound pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree with you here in the United States. That's the story. In, in Germany, it's not. No. On the brink of contracting. In yes. Japan, we're already there on the yes. brink of recession. Yeah. Let's talk about the other two biggest economies in the world, the number three and four. Right. We could have them in recession by the middle of this year, can we, we Julia? Could, we could. And and the question then is, is it a recession that is sort of technical in nature in the sense that we've already stabilized the virus and we know everything's on its way back? That would be less worrisome than if there is sort of knock-on effects to sentiment and that's sp- spilling over into um, services and consumer Yeah, and spending. I think this is key for the market. For this bull market to finish, a whole yeah. range of things can happen. But yeah. two of them that stand out to me... Either we lose faith in the ability and willingness of central bankers to act. Mohamed Adair has made that point very well over the last couple of weeks. Or we start to see that tension, that weakness in manufacturing appear in services, damage the consumer, hit the labor market. Then we've got a problem in America. How far are we from even thinking about that scenario? Well, we've been pretty far. I mean, it's been actually a little worrisome that markets haven't been reactive to information that suggests risks, right? We've had almost no pricing of risk. So that means we have 
further to fall if, in fact, there is a materialization that's meaningful. Well, and that's exactly where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Sort of this tension, is there too much complacency? We were talking earlier about this question. We've got the yield curve, the 210s yield curve, at the narrowest level since late last year, almost inverting yet again. And yet you have borrowing costs for the top-rated companies at record lows. Right. What will another Fed rate cut do to stimulate the economy given how low borrowing costs already are and the right. fact that asset prices are already so high? Right. Again, and I think that highlights like there was a little bit of ammo last year. They used it to address that worry middle of the year. Now, we, ha- if we have that same worry return, you have less ammunition. And I do think there's a lot of complacency in, in market pricing right now. Julia, I'm going to go to a line from, from Clara to Gally Gertler 21 years ago. It is then possible to represent the baseline model in terms of the IS curve, the real economy mm-hmm. curve, that relates the output gap to the real interest rate. There isn't a real interest Correct. rate. They wrote this paper when it was unimaginable. Unimaginable. We'd have negative that rates. That we are this, where we are. This stuff. It's not a ro- that is not a roadmap anymore. <laughs> well, and, and, and so we need new tools. We need new where tools. are the new tools? So, so I think it's been, um, to me, a little bit disappointing that in this policy review, uh, that the Fed hasn't sort of endeavored to think a little bit more outside the box. We need, there are... Is there, a trillion, let me help. Is a trillion dollar deficit outside the box enough? Well, I mean, the deficit is, may need to expand more if we get hit with a real shock. Is John, as a policy tool, Dow 32,000? Look, financial conditions matter, and the Fed responded to, to them quickly. I think what the Fed really responded to, though, in 18, December 18, was what happened in the credit market. Yes. When the primary market oh, yes. just shut down yes. for high yield. We don't see that. They always take credit as a much more material signal than the equity market fluctuation. So I think you're exactly right. In December, there was nothing trading in credit markets. And that was a very meaningful signal for the Fed. And they responded. What do you do when you have limited ammunition? You look to Japan. They're experiencing it right now. It's yield curve control right now. Isn't that the next stop? for this Federal Reserve beyond QE? Well, they've, they're already talking about yield curve control, so yes. But I think there are other ideas out there in the economics world, like automatic stabilizers, some kind of fiscal monetary coordination, uh, where you, you, know, you, you actually get to the problem, which is lack of demand. The transmission through financial markets is getting less and less powerful as we go on. As, the, as, as everybody knows that rates are gonna stay low, they don't need to respond to every wiggle in rates, right? So you get less of a delta into housing, into durable consumer spending. What you need is direct cash to consumers. Julia. Is, is that what you're recommending? Yes. Can you make it happen tonight? <laughs> Can we start writing some checks? Julia, great to see you. Julia, yes. That, that was brilliant. One of the great bias we have is towards broader strategists that have had the courage to go narrow in their earlier career. Mr. Leibovitz of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, John, has done that. He had the charm of really focusing on small and mid-cap equities at one point, which is way different than saying, uh, we have a buy on Apple. <laughs> Should bring him in now, David Leibovitz, JP Morgan Asset Management, long, Amazon market strategist. David, Microsoft, parts we of love this it. market where a lot of people are focused, and the big caps, I think, is where most people are looking at the moment. Yep. Where we've bid up some of these massive names. The Economist, the front cover for this weekend is just some robotic bulls with the logos of Microsoft, Apple, Google. 
Amazon, Facebook, and the headline, Big Tech's $2 trillion bull run. And of course, the bears said, this is the moment. That front page, this is the moment. Why is it not the moment? So I, th I think a couple of things. First of all, when everybody tells you it's the moment, it's very rarely the moment. So I would just, I would just start with that as a disclaimer. Um, in addition to that, you know, we see a lot of differences today in, in the, the makeup of the tech sector, particularly from a fundamental standpoint relative to what we saw uh, during the tech bubble in the late 90s. And I think perhaps the most important thing is just when you look at the relationship between market capitalization and contribution to overall earnings growth, it's much more balanced today than it was during the tech bubble. I mean, during the tech bubble, these companies had no earnings. You were, you were buying an idea. Today, those earnings are coming through a little bit more. But what I would say is, what gives me a little bit of pause is a lot of these big tech names, right? They're the ones that are keeping the rest of the tech sector afloat. You know, if you think about the way that when one of these big tech firms spends money, that trickles down into the broader tech sector and coming back and wearing my small and mid cap analyst hat, you know, if, if something happens to these big names, they're not necessarily going to bear the, the full brunt of, of that. It's going to be the smaller names that they've been keeping afloat through their, through their various spending. What's fascinating though, David, is the amount of people that use this term secular growth story. I want to be yeah. in the secular growth <laughs> stories. Some of these companies aren't old enough to have ever had a cyclical test, right. yet we have their, this faith that they are the secular growth story. They are almost the havens, I dare I say. I remember when a guest came on my program and said that Amazon <laughs> was a haven. Yep. Is that how some people are treating this? Just queuing off low rates, low yields, looking at some of these big secular growth stories and bidding up software? I, I think I think that that's a big part of it, and you know when when we look at the direction of travel, and and I'm sympathetic to the secular argument. You know, you look at the labor market, you look at the increasing use of automation that clearly benefits the tech sector more than it benefits um, other parts. You know, that said, I, I think that it's important not to get ahead of ourselves. And one of the things that's happening in tech more broadly, right, if we zoom out away from the public markets and think about what's happening on the private side of the equation, you know, you're seeing a lot of VC to PE deals. You're seeing a lot of sponsor to sponsor deals. They right. don't really care about the earnings. All they care about is the oh, revenue. Really? And that makes me a little bit uncomfortable about the How long run trajectory. Let me look at VC <laughs> I, to VC. I want to <laughs> flip what you're saying on its head, which is what you were saying is the 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 gains in big tech might mask the vulnerability of smaller tech companies, but it might also mask the underperformance of other companies within the entire rest of the U.S. economy as well. And I'm yep. struck by this uh, figure uh, that John Authors put out that if you exclude the big five, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, uh, Alphabet, and Amazon, U.S. earnings were down significantly in the fourth quarter. If you look at the Russell 2000, it's continuing to underperform the S&P 500. Is the, the rally the $2 trillion rally in big tech, mm -hmm. masking some serious underlying weakness. I, I think it absolutely is. And one of our big concerns looking ahead at 2020 is actually how the earnings story plays out. Um, if you look at the 11 gig sectors today, there are only four of them that are seeing margins expand. Right? Te uh, financial saw margins expand in the fourth quarter because of a favorable base effect. Staples are seeing their margins expand. Utilities are seeing their margins expand. And then tech is seeing its margins expand. The rest of the market is seeing profits come under a pretty significant amount of pressure, yet you still have consensus looking for 8 to 9% earnings growth in 2020, which I just yeah. can't square that circle. What are your clients doing? I mean, part of your job is to go out yep. and talk to the troops, and by that I mean the clients. We did the backdrop here, the Morgan Stanley E-Trade, and you're talking to more substantial people at J.P. Morgan. Great. What are they actually doing with their money besides telling you they need more Apple? 
Yeah. So I, I think what's most interesting, the most interesting trend that we've seen over the past couple of quarters uh, is primarily a phenomenon in the institutional world. So pensions, endowments, foundations. And what we're seeing a lot of folks do is is look at the world today look at their portfolios, not necessarily be keen to add more equity beta to their overall allocation, but they look at fixed income and they're not getting paid oh, to own come bonds on. They're either. not making their actual assumption and their assumption's going down right now. They're under, and John, this goes back to Jeff Yu and the wall of money out there at UBS. These people are desperate at their actuarial underperformance. Plus Bruce Kasman and Michael Feroli are going to tell them the actuarial assumption's coming down as well. That pressure is immense, isn't it? it? Exactly, it is. And so what we're seeing a lot of people do, because again, it, you know, adding high yield to get that income is just going to increase your overall sensitivity to equities. So we're seeing more and more people adopt things like real estate and infrastructure and transportation strategies as a sor- source of both diversification and yield within portfolios. You know, The flip side of that is when I talk to a lot of retail clients, everybody feels pretty good. Market was up 30% last year. Nobody really seems to remember what happened in December of 18, yet coming back back to the okay. profit story, we're seeing earnings begin to dry this up. This is brilliant, folks, what you're hearing here from Julia Coronado back to back with David Leibowitz is just outstanding. Okay, great. Is Apple, Amazon and the others, John, on the cover of The Economist this week, are they under-owned by institutions? I, I think that they are probably not under-owned by institutions because more and more institutions that I speak with are, are indexing their large-cap public equity exposure. I mean, it's very difficult to add alpha in that market. I mean, there are, what, north of 20 analysts that cover Apple? There's can, there's no stone that goes that goes left unturned. He's mentioned three Greek letters. Can he stay? He can stay for as long as he likes. <laughs> Pain trader last year, equity markets just kept going higher. Exactly. Despite all the outflows, equity markets kept going higher, and the biggest risk wasn't a downside risk, it was upside risk. And the calls you needed to get right the policy call and the call on multiples yep. is 2020 any different I, I don't think it is you know I think that one of the things that's been supporting this market as of late is an idea that a the coronavirus issue is is in fact transitory and B whoever ends up in the White House this fall you know when we look at governments more broadly around the world the fiscal taps are staying open so if there's no inflation policy remains accommodative on the monetary side and if the fiscal taps continue to flow that's a pretty good environment for equity markets overall Tom you asked if institutions under own big tech. I was struck by a Wall Street Journal story yesterday about Warren Buffett's Apple stake. And it's more than doubled to $79 billion since he began buying in 2016. He it's basically capitulated. He still can't put any, money, any of his money to work, but he said, I didn't go into Apple because it was a tech stock, but rather for its brand and capital return strategy. They have so much cash. They can okay. just keep pouring well it into uh, investors' hands. So is that the underpinning here? I mean, it used to be in small cap and mid cap where there was no share buyback, no dividend growth. Is that the mother of all underpinnings here? in 2020, the use of cash that Lisa alludes to. I, I think it is. We actually just released a, uh, a paper last Friday on how corporations have been using cash and thinking about investment spending versus R&D versus dividends versus buybacks. And, and the way that we're really informing ourselves and driving our own strategies this year is by focusing on this concept of total shareholder yield. So dividends plus buybacks, right? Everybody always wants to know, what do you like more, value or growth? Frankly, I think you can own both. The financial sector pays a 6.5% total shareholder yield. Tech is paying you a 4% total shareholder yield, and you don't have that downside risk if rates do move higher that you're getting from utilities and staples. John from Coventry emails in and says, what should I do with Uber? That's, you know. Oh, is that what he said? (laughs) Is that what he said? We won't get a response. David, great to catch up with you. Country real estate. David Leibovitz, JP Morgan Asset Management, Global Market Strategies. Julia Coronado, David Leibovitz, back to back. Jonathan Fenby too. And John Fenby. Absolutely brilliant. 
Right now, John, to jump in here with the new slow, we get lucky again. Jonathan Fenby joins us. His book on France is absolutely authoritative. I read it cover to cover. Stunning history for Americans, clueless on the European distinction. That's a sidecar transaction for him versus what he does with China. His monograph, John, three years ago, will China dominate the 21st century was absolutely definitive and that's a little bit of an appoint, uh, a question right now is china's a bit distracted wonderful to bring in jonathan fenby now t.s lombard chairman of china research jonathan fantastic to have you with us on the program mohammed alaren has talked about these sudden stop dynamics and i'm interested to see how you think some of these things will cascade through the global economy in the coming months how are you thinking about that at the moment john well, the, the, the outbreak of the virus, uh, the coronavirus, uh, has come really as, you know, it's, it's a big, big test for the leadership uh, in China. And it's having <clears throat> pretty wide effects there, obviously in China itself, but now increasingly outside China. And for the leadership of Xi Jinping, the first priority is to show that they can sell, they can save the na- protect the nation, uh, prote- you know, prevent this virus taking yet more lives and so on, and bring things under control. But that comes with, as we now see, are seeing, a heavy economic price. Uh, in the terms of the lockdown, the quarantining, the closed factories, particularly after the Lunar New Year, and the disruption to the supply chains, which globally depends so much on China, and which are very, very complicated, very complex, um, uh, go both in and out uh, of China. And to rebuild those is going to be a, a major uh, element. So we're going to have a slowdown in growth, probably quite serious uh, in the first quarter. Depends how long, obviously, it is before industry gets going again. Uh, and that will lead to a stimulus package, uh, undoubtedly, by the leadership. It won't be as big as uh, 2009, uh, which was mega, um, but it'll be very concerning. It's already starting, and that will then, in turn, raise questions about yeah. uh, the debt level in China and whether they're going to give up uh, the attempt at deleveraging. So, so a really, lot to unpack China here, is in a whole series of uh, choices and policy issues at the moment, which is going to affect markets worldwide. Well, let's pick up on some of the issues that you've put out there at the moment. On the one hand, containing the virus. On the other hand, stabilizing the economy. And somewhere in between social instability issues as well, Jonathan, how does that fit into these two issues? Absolutely. Uh, and control, controlling China, Chinese society, and that's 1.4 billion people, of course, uh, has always been a major priority of the current leadership under Xi Jinping. Um, and that attempt to uh, bring about stability, as it's called, in the face of consider- a lot of public uncertainty and unhappiness, but also a certain degree of public anger, uh, which has been uh, manifested through social media at the way the virus has been uh, combated, uh, is going to cause quite a big political problem. And we've already seen Xi Jinping sending in trusted lieutenants to take over key positions in the most uh, affected areas of China. Jonathan, it's interesting that we had Tony Crescenzi on from PIMCO earlier, and he wrote in a recent report that the general resilience that we've seen in equities demonstrates the existence of a new global monetary order highlighted by the prominent role that the PBOC now plays as a circuit breaker for world markets. 
Do you think that that is an accurate characterization? Well, it, that, that depends on how effective um, the PBOC measures, the easing measures which they've undertaken, uh, together with others uh, measures taken by the government, how um, effective that will prove in buoying up the economy in China. And frankly, with the degree of uncertainty around at the moment, uh, this is something we have to watch, wait and watch. You know, John, I, I look at your expertise on China, the making of the history of China and and all that you've written. It's, I guess it's, you know, they had a script and the script has been derailed. If they don't get the V-shaped recovery, even if it's delayed by two, three, four quarters, what's the Fenby timeline where the script begins to fall apart for President Xi? Well, the difficulty is next year is a very important historic year. It's the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Chinese Communist Party. And this was due to be a great celebration of how China, under the Communist Party, has yeah. uh, built itself up and was you know, a model for the world to set uh, alongside yeah. that of the West and the United States. And that will be a big political problem. So I think they're going to throw everything at it. If it turns out to be a U-shape or even more, an L-shaped for the rest of this year, there's going to be a really Uh, major policy decision that's going to have to be taken in Beijing, which will affect uh, the whole world. John Fenby, we want you to fall back on economics, finance, and investment right now. You're expert on France, the lethargy of Europe as well. Let's call it Eurosclerosis. The yields are there. The negative rates are there. The yields are there this morning in the United States. What does the yield structure of Europe signal to you? Well, that Europe is Europe is still pretty sluggish. It must be said, uh, Eurosclerosis. I don't know that I go quite that far. And to link in with what we were saying earlier, of course, a lot of uh, European companies are pretty dependent on components and inputs from China, not just in selling into China, but also in components um, uh, in themselves. And the uncertainty, uh, I, I think, that's around at the moment is going to put a premium on what are seen as safe havens, gold, uh, obviously we've seen the movement in gold, uh, and that this will mean strength for the dollar uh, still, and Europe is is really uh, floundering a bit, I think, in the present situation. Although there are some bright spots, you know, French unemployment has come down uh, to go to, to France, uh, but Germany, which is the motor uh, yeah. of so much in Europe, is really in a, in a state of economic uncertainty and political uh they don't know where they're going just pouring through the data this morning it's a great shame you get a real sense that domestic demand in europe was just starting to pick up before it's yeah, been yeah, smacked yeah, around the yeah. head by what is happening in china jonathan i was looking through the pmis and they're really quite nuanced and we pour over all of these different sub indices and delivery times lengthened in Germany, but when they calculate the headline number, the supply delivery times index is then inverted, and you end up in this really situ- weird situation in Europe today, where almost half of the index's month-on-month gain for German manufacturing was attributable, attributable to a deterioration in supply delivery times. It's pretty clear that we're starting to see some supply chain disruption, John. Can you assume at this point, would your base case be that Germany is heading into recession, or is it still too early? It's still probably too early, but it's heading towards a recession. I'd say towards rather than into recession. 
um, and the polit- politics come in here because one, with the present uncertainty with the ruling party, the CDU, um, after Merkel, what's going to happen? Her designated mm-hmm. successor having stepped down, uh, a, a, quite a nasty fight going on among other contenders for the leadership. We're not going to get any clear political uh, decisions no. on the economy, uh, I think. And although uh, President Macron of France has high ambitions, uh, France can't take up uh, that German right. role. Uh, so we're, we're in a real period of uncertainty, which, as you absolutely rightly say, the link with China, both uh, China as an export market, but also, as I was saying earlier, China as a source or a right. vital source in the, the European supply chain uh, is going to leave us in considerable uncertainty well, for months ahead and perhaps on into to the end of the year. Sounds like the next book, the next treatment from Jonathan Fenby. Thank you so much with T.S. Lombard. A focus on the Fed, focus on the ECB. Two meetings coming up just a month away to focus on all of that. I'm pleased to say Tony Crescenzi in the building here in our studios. Pimco Market Strategist, Portfolio Manager and member of the firm's investment committee. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning, everyone. What's well, the message to me. the clients calling you up and worrying? What do you tell them? Well, uh, that much of what you've seen in the financial markets, both the decline in markets and risk assets when the news of the outbreak um, occurred and then the subsequent snapback tell you uh, several important things about markets that will persist beyond the coronavirus story. Let me give you the two negatives and the one positive that brought it back. The, the one big negative is that markets are worried, and anything could bring this worry about and to the surface, that economic growth globally is so close to stall speed that anything that comes along and weakens it could easily tip economies like you saw in Japan with a minus 6% plus print for last quarter into into recession, to negative territory. That's number one. Secondly, markets are worried, and they will have to persistently worry about this, that central banks can't do much about uh, weakness in economic growth. They're running out of policy tools. In fact, today at a monetary policy forum in New York, which Michael McKee from, uh, from Bloomberg will be at, uh, the main topic Who? will be Michael McKee. <laughs> Crossly. Are those He's your infamous. notes? With Loretta Mester, yes. He has, he has a sheet of paper He's, with scrolls. I want to make sure I get the topic right. The, the, the main article that will be discussed by Lyle Brainerd from the Fed yeah. and Bostic is um, monetary policy for the next recession. Because what is it that they would do? So on the corona, co- coronavirus issue, uh, it just brings to the surface these worries about policy buffers, not only from the, the monetary authority, but the fiscal authority. But here's the, the what brought markets back and is enabling markets to look through this all. And it's something monumental. And it's a new global monetary order where two central banks in the world the U- the US central bank and the chinese central bank can be circuit breakers to to weakness in ec- global economic activity and here's a central bank the pboc that is perfectly positioned because it's the problem is in china to address the issue okay, the fed is in no the, way the, positioned to help it at tony, all tony the problem on my screen is 112% of our listeners we got are we up to 42 listeners 43 now 43 so. okay all thank right, you good morning mohammed um, but but, but, but tony what's important here this is really important our listeners are getting crushed by essentially record low real rates I get it that there's a policy conference of Brainerd and Clarida and the rest of them and Mester will be there and Michael McKee will be there. That's all blah, blah, blah for the elites. What about the people out there getting crushed by this low rate regime? 
They shouldn't look to the monetary authority. They should look to the fiscal authority. Or look uh, to a dividend growth structure, right? Amazon is a dividend grower? Dividends are for the S&P 500 are around 2%, and the tax taxation on dividends is better than the taxation on uh, interest income, generally speaking, for most individuals. So, so individuals can keep You've that in mind. But the, are you the equity strategist yet, for yet, this yet, week? Yet, for safety of principle, one must be in bonds, of course. But the, they, oh, should nice to, disclaimer. they should look to the fiscal <laughs> we have authority. We have disclaimer, too, about Mr. Bloomberg, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say that, of course. But it is true, because we are higher in the capital structure, as they say. We, we but the, say if 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 the if citizens savers were to look to their to politicians they should say why don't you do something about economic growth low interest rates aren't doing it so why don't you do something transformative perhaps so when we travel into new york city from new jersey maybe do what the senator chuck schumer wanted and and build that second tunnel that oh, leads to really? penn station the busiest commuting rail station this in the country maybe Paul we Sweeney's should do things like that pet project john he talks about it every single Does day he? we talk about municipal bonds and he says how about raising some money for that, you know, cross-state? Or our personal, very quickly, Or for it? us Staten Islanders, we crossed the Verrazano Bridge, which was the largest suspension bridge uh, built in the world at the time, 1964. Maybe we could what have a nice the, tunnel, is, a train to get into that. It's a tour of the five boroughs. John, would you save us, please? Can we talk about the cyclical outlook of PIMCO that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago? <laughs> oh, let's get back to the exciting we're, things. We're, we're close to stall speed. That was the outlook. Correct. Have we gone beyond that now in places right. like Germany? Are you worried that maybe you need to revise your cyclical outlook for 2020? Well, PIMCO uh, in a week and a half will have a, another cyclical forum. We hold the, have them quarterly. Uh, so we'll see what we conclude. Uh, the early view is that uh, the, the, based on PMIs, Purchasing Manager Indices, that there's a rebound was underway before the coronavirus issue began to hit the world economy. We will be questioning whether or not we think that 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 the thesis holds um, for the second half of the year. Probably it, it probably will because of the notion that central banks are coming to the rescue again. But we are questioning, again, the, degree, the extent to which they can help. Well, let's talk about the degree to which people will respond to central banks coming to the rescue. It took about 18 months of targeted stimulus from China to finally start seeing some results. Do you have that much faith in the policymakers still? Well, one could say, in terms of policy levers in China, that, that they have formidable resources to, to uh, help uh, the economy there, but there's still a lot of worry about demand destruction. It, it can pull the fiscal policy lever in ways that no nation can. And remember, it has $3 trillion built up in what's called what are called international reserves from us buying stuff that says made in China. And yeah. so it can use that money uh, wisely and uh, to invest and to... to promote economic growth. Tony, it's good to see you. Terrible answers. I gave terrible answers. You could, no one could see, see the listener couldn't see that I was using my hands to talk. Like we'll have to get Italian camera way. on you at some point, Tony. Thanks for dropping by. Thank Fantastic you. Fantastic as always. Me. Tony Crescenzi there, PIMCO Market Strategist, Portfolio Manager, and member of the firm's investment committee. We've got uh, just an incredibly busy day in economics, and in New York, it is a celebration of the smartest confab going. Uh, with us, Michael McKee, who does all the things economics worldwide here today. We're going to get to Philip Lane here. John is acutely interested in your interview with Mr. Lane of the ECB uh, as well. But but Mike McKee, you know, I look I, I look now at this confab today, and it just seems way more important than it usually is. Well, the uh, Chicago Booth School puts on a, a conference every year, one-day conference, uh, oddly in New York rather than in Chicago. But it's all about central banking and yeah. basically all of the country's 
uh, and Wall Street's biggest name economists and most of the Federal Reserve, and as uh, we saw with Philip Lane, uh, many central bankers from around the world attend. And John, what's so important about this is it's sort of the we've run out of ideas conference. And that's why Mr. Lane is so original. The yeah, what ammunition Trinity. do they have left, especially at a time when we're worried about a growth scare in China? So I think the coronavirus is the focus for central bankers worldwide at the end, at the end of the day. Let's take a listen to what ECB chief economist Philip Lane had to say. Like everyone else, I think the base case is a V-shape. So, I mean, number one is let's see uh, how quickly the spread of the virus is contained. Um, uh, the sooner that happens then the more confidence that this would be a, indeed something that is mostly in quarter one, uh, maybe spilling over into quarter two. But you know, from our perspective, I mean, our, our main focus is, is on uh, the year end, going into next year and the year after. So for us as monetary policymakers, if this is indeed uh, contained, even if there is a, a hit in terms of the initial uh, weeks of 2020, if the recovery happens as we expect, then in terms of the uh, medium-term policy challenge, it, it remains something that uh, um, is it, not going to change our base case. But it's definitely a downside risk. Until we see the containment, until we see the uh, recovery after that, uh, we, we have to keep a close eye. Well, one of the big issues is this could be a supply chain disruption. Monetary policy can't fix that. So what are the odds that the ECB would take any action? Well, this goes back to, again, any supply chain disruption, if it's a matter of weeks, doesn't change the medium-term path for the economy. So really, uh, we think the main mechanism, by the way, is, is obviously through Chinese demand. Uh, with lower uh, spending in China because of the, what has been necessary to contain the virus, uh, obviously spending levels in China are different than they would have been. The supply chain scenario does exist. Uh, we're tracking it, we look at it, but so long as these are delays in delivery of goods, um, so, so long as these uh, remain temporary in nature, then it's, it's not a dramatic issue for, for the medium term horizon. ECB Chief Economist Philip Lane there sitting down with Michael McKee. Lucky to have Mike with us in the studio here in New York. Back at the end of 2018, Mike, President Mario Draghi, former President Mario Draghi, was talking about things being temporary, transitory, and then in 2019, that's cut rates and restart QE. Why is this so different? Why is this economic situation we face right now so different to what we faced 18 months or so ago? Investors have been basically uh, trading on patterns, and the pattern has been that we get an event that scares people, it lasts for a few weeks, it goes away. So you buy the dip. And that seems to be the prevailing psychology on Wall Street. We're into our fourth week now or fifth week now of the coronavirus, and we wake up to headlines today saying, oh, no, wait, it's worse. And so uh, now we're starting to see maybe some concern that this is a blacker swan than uh, people had thought. It's hard to know, and as uh, Philip was saying, it's very hard for economists uh, and central bankers to get their hands around what it actually means. And it's not really showing up in the data yet. The, the only data we've seen that had a major, uh, that, that ha has shown it is, you look at something like the German PMIs, which you were talking about, the sub-indexes, supplier delivery times. They go, they get longer usually when demand is high. Yeah. In this case, they're getting longer 
because the supplies aren't coming in from China to build the things that the Germans are selling to other people. And so th th there is a sign that something is coming but it's not there yet. It's a crazy quirk of the data because as the delivery times lengthen, the sub-index drops below 50, then they invert it as they compute it into the headline number. So you get this boost to German manufacturing PMI that seems to be largely from supply side constraints. And this is the problem going forward, Mike. When do we actually start to get our hands around the data? When do we know what well, is actually is, this going This is on? about the time. We're, we're going to start to get trade data coming in and we'll see some impacts, particularly we'll look at the Asian trade data that comes in, South Korea, Thailand, uh, places like that, which are deeply integrated into the Chinese supply chains. Um, if, the, if they show some real damage, then you can expect it only to spread. Data in Japan looks terrible. Recession yep. looks odds on. And some of this has been self-harm. And now the Chinese story is just going to make it worse, isn't well, it's, it? Well, it's bad for them because not only do they have the supply chain issues, but Japan is the biggest destination for Chinese tourists. And so probably the only place worse off in that sense is Macau with all the casinos yeah. closed. Uh, the Japanese are definitely going to be hurt by this. Uh, Michael, this thing in New York at the Intercontinental today is a huge celebration of academic thought. And I'm going to go back to Yellen 2016 on toolkit past, present, and future. Not only can we not count the tools in the toolkit or figure out how to use the tools in the toolkit, I don't think there's a confidence in the tools right now. What tools are in the toolkit for all these fancy economists? Well, it depends on which central bank you're talking about, but for the Federal Reserve, they're basically focused on QE and forward guidance. And they're more focused on forward guidance than anything else. At this point, the idea is that uh, you do buy things, buy more uh, more um, bonds uh, in QE, but the announcement effect is gone, the surprise effect is gone. Yeah. And you've got a 10-year sitting at you know 1.5% roughly, so you're not going to okay. get a lot of bang for that buck. So well, well, let's 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 be speculative here. We can do that on a Friday, Michael. 1.9175 on a 30-year bond. John, how negative is that real yield? Speaking of your 1 p.m. show today. Well, inflation call. Where is it now? Just north of two percent. Yep. So we got it depends on which deflator you use. Agreed. You you can do. use you know two. So you are looking at a negative. Real, Real rate for, for 30 years. In Lyle Brainerd's world, in Richard Claritus' world, in, in Professor Lane's world, could anybody use any of these models with a negative real yield? I don't see any of that in the literature. It makes it more difficult. Um, that's why they're looking at things. I mean, they, one of the things that's in the back pocket of the Fed is yield curve control. I know you've talked about that before. Um, the idea that you say you're just going to buy X number of bonds of a certain tenor and uh, you know you're, you're, you're gonna say here's the price instead of going out and buying it in the the open market um, and then that caps a yield that's one idea they could do the Fed has ruled out negative rates the ECB they ruled out stocks, likes to start rates. buying Apple to make they, happy? They, the Fed Reserve cannot buy stocks legally Really? In so, writing, they can't be the Swiss National Bank? They cannot. Yes. Uh, I didn't and, know that. And there is a legal question about whether the Fed could even do negative rates legally if they wanted to, but they say they don't want to. Meanwhile, there's a balance of risk here. On one hand, you have uh, financial assets which are near record highs, near record high valuations. You've got corporate bond yields falling to record lows. And so people say financial conditions are easy. We don't need another rate cut. We don't need more stimulus. On the other hand, you're seeing the lowest income earnings 
foreigners finally seeing the gains in this cycle, the economic cycle. And there's a fear of stymieing that since it takes so long to get that going. Which is a more important factor for the Fed to look at right now? Well, probably I'd throw in the third factor is what would do any good? Uh, in either case. I mean, the Fed has obviously made the decision to let the economy run to try to benefit uh, people. Uh, for Wall Street, every problem can be solved by the central bank. It rained last Thursday, they should cut rates. Cutting rates isn't going to help if you have a supply chain problem because it's, the Fed is set up to increase demand, not supply. So they may, uh, they lean towards doing nothing because there isn't a lot they can do. Although you would say at this point in the credit cycle, we're actually starting to see consumer debt pick up. You're starting to see Morgan Stanley with their move or Goldman Sachs push into consumer lending as the next spot of profitability. Could there be a theory that finally, as a greater proportion of the United States gains more confidence, goes out and borrows, it sort of reignites the economic cycle? Is anyone talking about that? Sure. Um, there's a a lot of people, are, uh, and the more optimistic of the economists are saying, you know, we had a dip. We had a not an end of the economic cycle, but a sort of reset. Also, sort of in the way you have a, a correction in the financial markets, the ec economic cycle corrected with all the recession fears last summer, and now we're starting anew. Right. Uh, Hard to measure that because the numbers aren't really supporting it except for uh, the job growth numbers, but we're not seeing a dip either. So at this right. point, uh, you know, yeah. the, the one thing I would say is uh, our Matt Bosler, whom you all know and love here, put together a great chart yesterday, added up household and uh, business debt, and it is not expanding at the same pace it did in previous okay. cycles. Mike, I don't care. Bruin Stanley Cup bound. Uh, I would hate to make a prediction. But at with this surveillance point on a because, Friday, go ahead. Well, here's the problem, Tom. You know as well as I do that they're in line to win the president's trophy, which means they have the best record in the league at the end of the season. And everybody who wins the president's trophy loses the Stanley Cup. So at this point, That's true. you got to hope they yeah. fall back just a little bit. Okay, we had to do that to balance out the football talk earlier. That's English, that's soccer talk. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.